This morning, I thought we would take a break from our series as we've been traversing through the books of Kings, and because, especially because there's this image in this particular chapter of Job that I haven't really been, a get, been able to get away from. Uh, and so I thought I would study out the rest of this particular chapter, especially putting it in context in light of the rest of Job. And I think it, this particular chapter is one of the most fascinating it comes right mostly in the middle of this conversation. And, you know, it might feel like we're interrupting a conversation that's already started and we don't have a lot of context. And so uh, we're gonna, I'm going to try and give you some of that um, because that's exactly what's happening. We're, we're interrupting a dialogue between Job and his friends as they are sitting around. I imagine them around this little coffee table uh, and, they're try- and they're discussing Job's life. As you perhaps know, if you've done some studying or reading on Job, Job is this figure that often is always tied to the notion or the subject of suffering. And at this particular time, Job has had his entire life, uh, we could say, upended or overthrown is his words in this particular chapter. All of the things that he had accumulated for himself, his possessions, his securities, all of his children even too, have been completely wiped out. Snuffed out of existence, bringing him to this place where he's basically down to nothing. And that's when the boils started. (laughs) That's when he was afflicted not just with disaster, but with disease. So Job's life was this wreck of a life. It was completely ruined from the outside looking in. And I think one of the things that is persistent throughout Job, all of its 42 chapters, is the precise fact that Job didn't know why. He never knew why all of these things occurred the way that they did and in the timing that they did. He was never given an answer, never given an explanation, never given a reason, never given a clue. You and I, of course, know. We have the benefit of reading Job with a knowledge that Job was not aware of. We have the first two chapters. We have Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 where we see this amazing scene in which the adversary, Satan, comes into this room where, where God is. And he throws out this wager. If you go back to Job chapter 1, listen to the words of the adversary as he approaches this throne. And he's talking about this servant Job. He only loves you because of the things that you give him, is his words. Verse number 9 of chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Does he fear you for nothing? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. If you just take away, if you take away his possessions, he's going to curse you. If you take away your blessing, he's going to curse you. He's going to fall away. He's going to renounce his faith and his trust and his loyalty in you, Jehovah, because he's only after it for the blessings. That was Satan's sort of logic, that Job is only faithful because he's getting something out of it. He's getting some sort of prosperity, some sort of peace. So then, Job chapter 1, all of those possessions are taken away. 
all of his livelihood, all of his family, all of his children. And then it happens again because Job, as it says at the end of chapter 1, listen to these amazing words. In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Even after all of that wreckage, he was still faithful to this one that he had put all of his faith in. So then Satan comes again in chapter number two, and he ups the ante. He increases his wager. Look at chapter number two, verse number four. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath. Will he give for his life, but put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. If you afflict his health, if you afflict his body physically, he will surely renounce you. And then the boils start, and the disease starts. See, this is what I think makes Job so fascinating, is Job is unaware of all of that. He doesn't know about the wagers between Satan and this God. He doesn't know about this scene in heaven in which all of this is being discussed without his input, without his insight. For all Job knew, put yourself in Job's shoes, for all Job knew, he's just having a string of just perhaps the most awful luck anyone has ever faced in the history of the world. It's a string of some really bad, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. That's what he's having in a row. That's what he sees. That's what he knows. That's his knowledge of the situation. And finally, at the end of chapter 2, his friends, quote unquote friends, as we'll find out, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, they come to him. And they're visiting with him in his sorrow. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all this that was come upon him, they came, everyone from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. They could see Job's distress and his devastation, and they were just with him. They didn't open their mouths. They didn't try to talk. They didn't try to explain anything. And I would say, as I like to say, that's the best decision that they ever did. From that point forward, his friends don't act very friendly. Because we see in Job chapter 3, Job just lets out this sort of string of frustrations. It's sort of like, you know, when you get with your particular friend and you're able to just sort of vent. And you're just able to sort of just unload all of this grief. Did you hear about this? I just need to get it off my chest. That's Job chapter (laughs) 3. He's Getting all of the things that we've just heard about, the the horrible wreckage of his life and the disease on top of it. He's getting it off of his chest. And yet that's when his friends decide to sort of take up the mantle and like, let's figure out your suffering. 
They decide to, to, to begin examining Job's life to figure out and explain why Job had uh, suffered the ways that he had. What caused it? What, what brought this on? You had to have done something, Job. You had to have done something against your God. Otherwise, why would he be treating you this way? Why would you have all of this horribleness being thrown onto your life if you hadn't done something horrible in return or some time ago? And maybe you just forgot, Job. Listen to the logic of these friends. Notice chapter 4, verse 8. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. This is their logic. You're obviously plowing and sowing in fields of iniquity. Else you wouldn't be reaping what you're reaping, Job. You're, you're reaping hardship. You've obviously been sowing and planting in fields of sin and iniquity. And they go on like this. Job chapter 6. Notice he, Job himself, is frustrated. He Doesn't know how to answer his friends. Job 6 verse 24. Teach me and I will hold my tongue and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. I I can't see it friends. I can't see where I've gone wrong. How have I gone astray? I can't understand it. And the rest of Job goes on like this for Quite a long while. Just these conversations back and forth. Speeches back and forth. Where one friend will discuss suffering in such a way. And then Job is is trying to answer. And he's very much answering in light of faith. But this faith that is wrestling with doubt. Wrestling with fear. Wrestling with the distress that he has already just faced. But all of his friends are very certain. That Job has earned this in some way. And that's when we get to chapter 19. Because here at the beginning, Job's patience has sort of started to thin. His patience with his friends and their conversations has sort of started to wear off. And his buddy Bildad has just gotten explaining how Job's uh, situation has all the traces of someone that is an unjust man that doesn't know God. He's... Just explained that in chapter 18 how, you know, this sort of sounds like you, Job. You're an unjust man who doesn't know God because listen to what, well, go with me. Job chapter 18, look at verse 5. Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out and the spark of his fire shall not shine. Jump down to verse 12. His strength shall be hunger bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of the tabernacle and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. He goes on and on. With the, the sort of uh, the message of this particular chapter from Bildab is just, this sort of sounds like you, Job. Look at all these things that's happened. This is how God treats wicked people. That's his logic. And I would say that's his quote unquote counsel to this sufferer, Job. Do you think that's words that Job needed or wanted to hear? I'd likely say no. 
So I imagine this scene, they're around this coffee table, and he basically rips the mic out of Bildad's hand, and he jumps into this in chapter 19, where he just unloads, yes, on his so-called friends, but actually, even more strikingly, in this particular chapter, he even unloads on his God, which ought to make us a little bit nervous at first, but listen to what he says, Job, chapter 19, verse 1, and Job answered and said, how long will ye vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me. <clears throat> you are not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me, and be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. You're adding to my affliction, guys. You're not alleviating anything. You're crushing me with your constant words, your constant explanation, your quote-unquote wisdom. These guys who should have been his comforters, who were his so-called friends, had miserably failed this job. And they might have meant well. They might have meant to alleviate Job and his pain. But all they've done is just make things worse. And in fact, that's what Job says in verse number 5. If indeed you will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach. Basically, he's saying you are, all you've done is just come across as if you're trying to puff yourselves up with your superior knowledge and wisdom, which is everything but helpful. All you've done is just made yourselves seem as if you have some sort of insight. But your counsel, if you can call it that, Job is saying, is nothing but just cold and compassionless drivel. It doesn't do anything to relieve my distress. In fact, you haven't acted compassionate towards me at all. And Job, at this juncture, is desperate for compassion. He's desperate for some sort of solace and sympathy. And he thought he might have had it in these friends. But the presence, as we've seen and as Job is here confessing, is anything but soothing. And he's in this unimaginably horrible place. Physically, yes, but emotionally, yes, even too. Because he viewed here, as he's about to display, that he viewed all of his problems and this predicament that he's been given as one that was caused by none other than God himself. This was Job's wisdom. Notice verse 6. No, know that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Sit in those words for a minute. Job has been... Brought to the end of his rope and then, and then some. Brought to the brink of perhaps what you and I would be able to withstand. And then thrown over the edge of this suffering life that he has been given. And he saw God as the culprit behind it all. God was the culprit of his suffering. Just think for a minute. Have you ever been in a situation where that can describe you? Where you feel like God is the culprit behind whatever catastrophe you are facing. And it almost feels, it almost feels like, how can I think that? You almost feel as if you're renouncing the faith because you think, God, why would you be treating me this way? I'll tell you one, you have good company in Job. Listening to his despair is 
somewhat frightening, actually. And I think it's interesting because we might be familiar with Job's story and the suffering that he faces and all this stuff, with, you know, the common things of this particular book. What I find most fascinating in verses 7 through 12, what do we get? We get an inside look into his understanding, his interpretation of what he's going through. You want to know Job's mindset? This is what it is. Behold, I cry out of wrong. I cry out violence and I am not heard. I cry aloud and there is no judgment. He has fenced up my way that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He has destroyed me on every side. And I am gone. And my hope he hath removed like the tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me. And counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. And his troops come together and raise up their way against me. And encamp around about my tabernacle. Striking, poetic, very, uh, very, we could say evocative words. Where he now feels totally encompassed, surrounded by a net, we could say, of just inconsolable grief. And he cries out for help. I cry out for justice. And there's no one there. No one's listening. No one's hearing me. No one's coming to my aid. He feels alone in this dark place of distress. As he says, stripped of glory. Destitute of all of those things that might give him some sort of solace or security. And yet his life is just a pulverized mess. As he says there in verse 10, it feels like the hope that he had had been uprooted. The violent image of a root system of a tree hurtling itself out of the ground by some lumberjack who's felling that tree. That's the image of the violence with, with which he has faced in his own life. The hope that he had has been taken out of the ground. And now he's explaining to his friends, this is my situation. Wherever he turns, wherever his eyes look, he is seemingly finding more proof, more evidence that God is against him. He was sure that he was the target of God's wrath. And so this is why he relates all of these different little things that begin to besiege him as, as if they were armies. Troops of the Lord, as he says, that have come and invaded my home, invaded my life. And to make matters worse, Job is forced to watch as each relationship that should have been a source of relief slowly disintegrates. These next verses are true, yes, truly devastating. Look at verse number 13. He hath put my brethren far from me. And my acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed. And my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. In his own house, he is saying. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife. Though I entreated for the, for the children's sake of mine own body, yet young children despised me. I arose and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. 
I don't know if anyone in the history of the world besides Job, perhaps Jesus can rival it, has ever felt so alone. He has to deal then with all of these appalling horrors that have come upon his life as though he's a stranger amongst his own friends. Dealing with all of that frustration and agony by himself with no comfort or company to speak of. And that's when he says in verse number 20 that he has escaped. As he says, I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. (laughs) Which is just to say he's barely hanging on at this particular point. All of the things that he had counted on have failed. It seems as if he is surrounded by darkness. I think, my friends, we are reading Job at his worst. Example of the ways in which all of those horrible calamities that fell upon Job's life have come and now they're reaping even more calamity in his soul. And perhaps you're wondering, perhaps very likely, why go all through this? What's the point of all of this? Well, I have three quick things that I think are actually hopeful, and I would say hopefully helpful, (laughs) that come out of such distress and disconsolation. I think the first one is just a lesson about friendship. A lesson about friendship, because as Job here relays, it's very clear that Job's friends had failed him. Failed miserably. In fact, that's what he says in verse number 21. Notice what he says. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me. O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Why are you adding to my distress, friends? You can understand Job's predicament. He has gone to his friends and confided in them, hoping that he would find some sort of understanding, some sort of compassion, some sort of sympathy. And all all he's gotten is answers and explanations and reasons why he was the reason for all of it. Instead of listening to him, they were trying to, we could say, prosecute him. Where did you go wrong, Job? Where did you fail? Where did you mess up? I have to confess that sometimes we can get like that too, I think. Maybe we're not as explicit as Job's friends. (laughs) Maybe we're a little more tactful. We have a little more uh, ways that we can say certain things. But aren't there times, maybe you can admit this, when we'd rather not listen to someone's pain as much as we would... Rather, just explain it away. Suffering makes us uncomfortable. It makes us unsettled. It's hard enough in our own life. It's hard enough to be around someone who is struggling with just abject disappointment and despair and grief. It would be so much easier for us if we didn't have to always hear about it all the time. How selfish is that? We very often don't have the words to say when someone is suffering. And yet we feel like we have to say something. I have to fill the quiet with something. And I think that when we do that, I think sometimes we just emulate Job's friends more than we'd care to admit. 
I think the more I've read Job and other books of the Bible, what I've come away with is that suffering, and I would even say even more personally, sufferers, they do not need your reasons or explanations for their suffering. As much as we would like to offer them, you know what they need? Your presence. Those who are in just caught as Job is in this in a net of grief, of grief or a string of sorrows. They don't need your philosophy of suffering or, or why such a thing has happened in the world because this world is broken. All those sorts of things. They need your company, your solidarity, your reassurance. And sometimes that means running to places that we would rather retreat from. Going to those places where the gospel calls us to are places of grief and pain. We would rather avoid talking about death and disaster and depression. Yet what does the scriptures continually impress upon us? We who are the church, Jesus' bride. What does he say? Romans 12, weep with them that weep. Enter into that season of weeping with that brother or that sister. Not with reasons, not with explanations, not with uh, wisdom with which they try to explain away the reasons for that weeping. But enter into that situation with solidarity, weeping with those who weep. Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 12, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. The writer of the Hebrews says the same. Hebrews 13.3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Remember those who are in shackles as if you too are in shackles, the writer of the Hebrews says. Remember those who are afflicted and suffering adversity as if you too are going through the same. Enter into that suffering as though you are a sufferer too. That's what it means, I would say, to be the church. The family of God and the body of Christ. True friends of the same friend of sinners. We demonstrate our love for the Lord and his love for us nowhere better than when we willingly embrace one another's suffering as our own. Not by trying to reason it or explain it away as Job's friends do, simply with our presence. I'm here for you, and I'm here with you. I'm here for the long haul. Proverbs 17, 17, we are brothers born for adversity. I think... What Job's friends show us is sort of what not to do with sufferers. What not to do is what these guys did. It's helpful in some ways as we can get into this logic of suffering, but it's unhelpful for those who are actually suffering. I think that's what a friend looks like. A lesson about friendship, a lesson about doubt, number two. Because there's two things that you will not find in the book of Job, no matter how hard you look. You can, you can look. I, I, I've looked. You won't find God reprimanding Job for the things that he said. 
You won't find a chapter where God is taking him to the corner and, and, and telling him, you, you, you shouldn't have said those things. And you also not find God explaining to Job the reason for his sufferings. As we said at the beginning, Job never learns why he went through what he went through. It's a mystery all the way through. God never comes to him and informs him. By the way, years before, your children suffered that tragic accident. Me and Satan had a conversation, and we were talking, and I just figured we could put you to the test. He doesn't tell him that. Job remains ignorant of that whole uh, ordeal. For the full 42 chapters, for the rest of his life, that misery remained a mystery, which I am very confident in saying that was the cause of more than a little frustration for Job. What do we want to know when we're in agony, when we're in suffering? Why? Why have you done this? And yet despite all of Job's doubts, God never chides Job. He never chastises him for any of the even eyebrow-raising things that he might have said. And that, I think, is what shows us what our God is like. You know, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible never looks down on a sufferer. As though it's something to be ashamed of. It never mocks someone who is in that predicament for their pain. One writer says that. The scripture never looks down on the sufferer. It never mocks his pain. It never turns a deaf ear to his cries. And it never condemns him for his struggle. It presents rather to the sufferer a God who understands. Who cares who invites us to come to him for help and who promises one day to end all suffering of any kind once and forever. That's what we find in scripture. Not looking down on someone because they just can't handle it. Because they're in a situation where they've, they've found themselves and they can't bear themselves up. The Bible never looks down on someone. In that scenario, actually, it presents to them a God who is infinitely compassionate and endlessly understanding. And he can withstand even our most agonizing cries when we are just yelling to God. Screaming out to him, why have you let this happen? He can take that. He can withstand those sorts of prayers. Prayers that turn into something a little bit else, perhaps. And I think God actually delights in meeting people in those sorts of situations right where they are. It says in Psalm 34, 18, that he comes near the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. He comes close to them. Yes, he comes close even to those who are struggling with fear and doubt and they're questioning everything that is around them. And he comes to them and he doesn't reprimand them. He comes to them and he embraces them. That's what God does through his word. That's what God does through his church. So don't be afraid to tell God about your pain. About your questions. About your fears. About your despair. About your disappointments. 
He sees all of it. He knows all of it. And he is sympathetic with you in it all. He can handle it. Your God can. A lesson about friendship. A lesson about doubt. A lesson, lastly, about hope. Because as we see this particular passage unfold, we are then struck again with that same age-old question. What does it look like for someone to find hope in the midst of suffering? This passage still, it brings, it's almost begging for that question. I think it's a natural question when we're reading about distress to ask, how can we be hopeful in that sort of scenario? It's the question of questions, I would say. In fact, it's maybe the oldest question imaginable in all of the human races. Why does suffering exist? With, I think, human logic saying that if we can just figure it out, if we can put all of the, if we can deconstruct the formula, then we can understand the formula, and then we can have some sort of meaning. We can find hope as long as we can understand the why. Why does this work this way? But as I said, suffering doesn't always have a reason, at least not one that we are always happy with, or at least not one that's always discernible in this life. That's frustrating. Job says, he says basically the same thing. Look at verse 23. Notice, oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. He's imagining his life being put into print in permanent ink. So that those in the future... They may be able to judge his life and come to some sort of understanding that even he could not. Oh, that I could have all of my days written down. And then maybe there would be someone who pities me. Someone who actually understands. Someone who is actually sympathetic with my plight. And he leaves it all for those in the future because he can't understand it. He can't make sense of it. Have you been in a place like that? I have. I I know. I still have no idea why my mom went through what she went through four summers ago. The most perplexing ordeal of it all. My mom, the, the pastor's wife of 30 years. I've never met a person who is more faithful in their walk with God in terms of getting up and reading the Bible. That's like my earliest memory. (laughs) Waking up at 6 a.m. and she's already awake opening her Bible and studying. (laughs) And then that summer she's afflicted with this horrible storm of depression wherein all sense of reality that she had was completely lost. How? How? My mom knew the Bible. She knew the truth. She knew what was true and what was false. She knew exactly what the Bible had told her. And yet this storm couldn't depart. She very much was like Job, suffering in a net of anguish that she couldn't work her way out. And yet I'm sitting on the sidelines trying to reason, trying to understand. And I have to just throw up my arms and say, God, I don't know why. And even still, I don't. 
Even still, it confuses me beyond no end. I remember, <laughs> I remember calling Natalie. I raced up to South Carolina from Florida when we were living at the time, and, and, and I, my dad and I had just gotten, and we had visited mom in the mental hospital, and we had come home, and I just remember staying outside for a long time, and I called Natalie, and I said, I don't know. I just remember saying it's really bad, and it was. I had no reasons. All my doctrinal textbooks, they couldn't do anything for me in that moment. I had no reasons. I had no answers. I had no explanations. Job is in that situation. And yet, notice what he does. This is, this is why I think it's remarkable and why I wanted to go to this pastor. I know I'm keeping long. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's calling God basically a monster. God, why have you done this? Why have you allowed all this? And then he comes. And he still pins his hope on something even he doesn't understand. Notice verse number 25. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. This living redeemer that he's pinning his hopes on. That's the only hope that he had. This burst of sudden and unexpected promise. that comes after he had spent so much time relaying all these griefs. And I think it shows us what it looks like to suffer. All that pain, all that sorrow, all that agony. It's very real. And we do nothing For ourselves and for anyone else when we pretend like it's not. I think I'm sometimes quick to do that. We don't want to admit when something's painful. But just as real as the suffering is, there is a real person who meets us in the middle of it. And scholars can debate on how much Job knew, how much Job was understanding of this idea of a redeemer. And I would just say it doesn't really matter. However fragile, however feeble, however really knowing he was, his faith clung to this promise that his redeemer was alive. That his vindicator was alive in that moment. And he was standing for him, for Job, for Job the sufferer. He was pinning his faith on that. Even if he couldn't make sense of it all. He knew that there was one who could. And he knew that one day he would see him with his own eyes. Notice that wonderful word in verse 27. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. 
bad translation. Basically, what it means is not as a stranger. So unlike all of those who were looking on him as though he was an alien, though he was a stranger, though he was a foreigner in his own home, he was holding on to this promise that there was one day he would stare into the eyes of his Redeemer and it wouldn't be as a stranger, some sort of person that didn't know him. It would be one who he knew. One who knew him. My friends, that's... All our hope clings to even this morning. I regret to inform you that I will not have all the answers for your seasons of suffering. I wish that I could offer them. We will not be able to discern what God is doing in our seasons of sorrow. But there's a hope that rests beyond hope. (laughs) which I think speaks peace to friendly souls, to suffering souls. And it's this, it's the hope of this friendly face that meets us in our suffering. That we will see with our own eyes. And it's the face of our Redeemer. It's the face of our incarnate sufferer and substitute. The one who embraces all of our griefs and pains and agonies. So much so, so he embraces them to such a degree that he takes them on himself. I think that's what makes this gospel so remarkable. We don't appeal to some nebulous hope. You're not encouraged to just hang on and grit through it and bear through it. Because the universe or something, some vague thing, whatever. The hope of the gospel is not vague. It's incarnate. It's embodied in the body of Christ. That's your hope. And just as Job declared here, we can declare, even yes this morning, that my Redeemer lives. And there is one day I will see him. And that doesn't take the pain away. But I can tell you, it gives you a sense of hope. Hope that is sprung out of hopelessness. This person will never turn away from you, this Redeemer. (laughs) No matter what seasons you go through, seasons of stress and worry and fear and doubt and distress. And yes, perhaps even tempted to think about giving up on God. He never relents in his pursuit of you. Suffer, sinner. Your redeemer is alive. And though we don't understand what perhaps the the calamities that we face. Your Redeemer is alive, and he will never turn you away. Cling to him this morning. Let us pray.